Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. This is Steve Savitsky. And today we have always, we always have special guests, but today we have a really a wonderful person who I know for many, many years, Rabbi Jerome Epstein, who is the CEO slash EVP Emeritus of the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism. Good day. How are you, Rabbi Epstein? I'm terrific. I feel very good. It's nice weather here. I heard you. I heard you down in Florida. So okay. So how many years were you actually the EVP CEO? Twenty years or more than that? Twenty-three years. But who's counting? Well, that's a long time to have one job, and uh, obviously everyone knew you and associated you with the conservative movement. And I have to say to my listening audience that when I still walk down the streets in Yerushalayim on Karen Ayusod, and there is the conservative center. And there's your name, Rabbi Jerome Epstein. How does that make you feel? It makes me, it gives me goosebumps because I know you. I mean, how does that make you feel when you walk down the street and you see your name on this building? I'll tell you, uh, I would like to say in all humility that it makes me feel very proud. I know what I did with others to help ensure that campus would be built. And uh, I feel every time I see what's going on in that building, in those buildings, I feel a great deal of uh, a sense of accomplishment. That's great. Well, it's a wonderful thing. It's a great it's a great tribute to you to have your name on the building. I urge all the people who are listening, take a walk down Karen Ayusod in Yerushalayim, right across the street from the Superstar. You'll see this, the conservative headquarters, and you'll see prominently displayed Rabbi Jerome Epstein. Anyway, ho- hopefully you'll enjoy it for many years. Okay, so what are you doing now, now that you're retired? What are you doing? I know you spend your time half between Florida and Israel, so... I, I used to. Uh, recently, uh, in the past year, I've been spending most of my time in, in Florida. I spend time working with the Fuchsburg Center, which you referred to before. When I retired, the United Synagogue asked me to continue on, and I said I would do something as long as it would, inter- would not interfere with the work of my uh, successor. I didn't want to be in his hair. And uh, they asked me if I would manage the Fuchsburg Center, which I did for a number of years. And then I continued on as a volunteer. The other thing that I've been doing, which uh, also gives me a great deal of sepul knefesh, a great deal of uh, pleasure, is I've been working with uh, the North American Conference on uh, Ethiopian Jewry to uh, help bring over the Jews who are still stranded in Ethiopia, help them get to Israel, and then uh, help them acclimatize themselves and uh, develop a uh, an approach for success in Israel. So that's been a, a big part of my time. That's wonderful. Now, 
I know that having been a member of the Jewish agency, I remember hearing many years ago that they brought the last people over. Obviously, that was not true, correct? <laughs> uh, they, every time they bring a group over, they say that's the last group. Right. Uh, right. The, the problem is that they never really take all of the Ethiopian Jews who could be brought over. They never really bring them over because every time they do a census, the number grows. The, the truth is they have Ethiopian Jews have children in Ethiopia, and that makes the families larger. And also the regulations are that uh, they're bringing Jews only with who have either who would qualify by the uh, law of return. But uh -huh. uh, there are people who uh, are Jewish and who claim to be Jewish, who practice Judaism, who live by uh, halachic standards according to their halacha, and they are not uh, eligible by certain guidelines, so they don't bring them over. One of these days it's going to happen, but there are still uh, several thousand Jews. Yeah, I was going to ask you, are they all in the same place or are they in different locations? Most of them are either in Addis Ababa, which is the capital, right. or in Gandhar, which Gandhar, is somewhere right. in the north. And every time I visit them, I haven't visited them in the past couple of years since COVID, every time I used to go to visit, I would meet Jews who would say to me, I want to go to, Ethi I want to, go to Israel. Uh, I know I want to be there for reasons to be part of the Jewish world. But also because my either my mother's there and I'm still here or my uh, children are there and I'm still here and I haven't been able to get to them. I, I met a woman the last time I was there who was nine over 90 years old who hadn't seen her son for over 40 years. Oh, and, wow. you know, you see that and you say, gee, I want to be part of a, an effort to reunite Jewish families. Now, how are they doing actually in Israel, the Ethiopians? Are they integrated fairly well into society or not? Some are and some aren't. The big problem for Ethiopian Jews is they come over. If, they, if they're not born in Israel, then they're coming over as Ethiopians with a uh, background that they're intelligent. Uh, I want to say that clearly, they're intelligent, but they have never learned how to learn. You know, you, we know how to learn. We know how to put things together. So if you ask a, an Ethiopian Jew, he's learned to memorize three times three is nine, four times four is 16, three plus four is seven. He can, he can do that. But if you say, Johnny's got a, got three pieces of, uh, of fruit and, uh, Melvin, has got four apples, how many apples, he can't figure that out because he's never you. learned how to put that together. Interesting, I know, because you keep reading about that. Anyway, it's very interesting that you're doing that. So now let's go back to the job. You know, So after you left, and you have a job like that, which is such an important job, 
What do you miss most about the job? I miss most, I guess, the opportunity to help congregations grow and to help uh, create a an ambiance that is going to attract Jews to congregations. It takes some creativity. Uh, I was able to do things that I felt helped our congregations be more effective, and I, I miss that. I also miss the opportunity to help congregations and clergy be more effective together. There are sometimes tensions in congregations. Yes, this be, is true. <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, sometimes uh, an objective, uninvolved outsider can help them figure out how to develop a strategy to live together and work together. That's great. No, look, there's no question we'll talk about the conservative movement in general, but they have. I mean, there are certain pockets in the conservative movement, synagogues that I know that are thriving, booming, growing, and others that are not. So what's the difference between the shul that's really making it and growing and the shul that's kind of dwindling? What do you think? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, a number of factors. Number one, uh, neighborhoods. Neighborhoods change. And, you know, if you if you build a building, that's great. But if the population moves away from that area, what do you do with the building? Uh, so that's one problem. Uh, the other issue is that I think when congregations have laity and clergy, working together that and they have a common goal and a common vision, then I think they're much more effective and the congregation is better uh, and stronger. I think that there are too many congregations where the laity wants to go in one direction and the clergy is not responsive to that direction or the clergy wants to go in a direction and the laity isn't responsive, the congregation doesn't grow. You know, I was uh, I was interesting because I was reading a little bit about the conservative movement and the rabbinic uh, assembly and the whole structure of how synagogues select rabbis, which is different, let's say, in the world that I live in, in the Orthodox world, where, you know, synagogues decide they want to have a rabbi. They like, they like the rabbi. He's 25 years old. They think he's great. And it's a large synagogue. And they decide we're going to hire him. But now in the conservative movement, there's more of a hierarchy, isn't there? Well, there are regulations uh, that help provide congregations with ex- more experienced rabbis uh, if they're larger. That is changing, I think. And more and more, it's going to be a free uh, free market. It's a little bit more of a free market than when I was uh, involved, uh, whereas a congregation that was, let's say, over 750 families couldn't take a, a rabbi who didn't have at least uh, seven or 10 years of seniority. And that worked for a long time. But now that uh, there are uh, so many congregations and fewer rabbis, that makes uh, it more challenging. Right. So you're kind of rethinking that position so that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that helps a lot. You know, I've seen, 
I mean, I've seen some large congregations, you know, and they've hired young rabbis who are, let's say, 30, 31 years old. Maybe they were an assistant rabbi for three years or four years, and they step in and they, some of them do beautiful jobs, some don't. But I'm just saying, it's the, also the, the synagogue at least feels empowered that, you know, they could pick some that they want. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's a kind, some change in maybe in the philosophy. I always thought it was a little bit too rigid, personally, but I'm not saying that I'm right, but I always thought it was a little bit too rigid for selection. At the, at the same time, one wants to be sure that they protect some degree of seniority. What is a rabbi who is, let's say, 50 years old, how does he or she maintain an opportunity to get into a, uh, a larger or uh, a more affluent congregation or a congregation is located in a better area. Uh, if the congregations, everybody wants young, everybody wants right. young and dynamic and uh, someone who's creative. Well, someone can be creative and can be dynamic, but not be young. And right. Uh, right. so that has to be balanced. Uh, very carefully. Okay, well, um, it's interesting. So when you think back to your tenure, you know, as the uh, CEO, EVP, what would you say the biggest impact you had on the organization? That's a, that's a difficult uh, question to answer. Um, one of the areas was the idea of uh, helping to create congregations that would encourage Jewish living growth, uh, that too often people come into congregations and say, I'm joining this congregation because I like the rabbi or I like the building or other things. And they come in and they're satisfied. But what takes them from the level of saying, okay, I not really Shomer Shabbat today, but I'd like to start growing in that area. And uh, how do I start? Uh, congregations very often, the conservative congregations, very often don't take the step of inculcating that feeling of growth and commitment in Jewish living. And so I think one of the big things that uh, I spent time on and some creativity was uh, helping congregations motivate, inspire congregants to grow in their Jewish living. Uh, another area was uh, commitment to Israel. When I was involved, we grew our summer Israel program uh, significantly. We uh, developed a, uh, a program for gap year students. And then we created this uh, center in Israel for visiting people, people who were uh, North Americans or Europeans uh, who came, uh, who would come to Israel and study and learn, who created the conservative yeshiva, uh, which is in the Fuchsburg Center on Agron. And uh, uh, we wanted not to create a yeshiva for preparation for a rabbinate, but uh, my big hope was that we would create a yeshiva that would create Jewish learners who would be the lay people in our congregations, the members of our congregations. And I've been very proud to see how that has uh, only grown in the past 20 years.
Well, that's good. I know that, I mean, I've read someplace that one of your initiatives that you wanted to uh, develop was that you wanted to encourage more people to eat kosher and to light, can light candles on Friday night. So was that, did that turn out to be successful? And how did well, you do it? Well, it depends on what you call successful. Yes, we did accomplish uh, that to a degree, but there's much more to be done. There are many more Jews who still don't light candles, don't make kiddish, don't go to services. Uh, there are many people who don't uh, observe kashrut to any degree. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of room for growth. I'm happy with where where we started, but I hope that someone will pick up the ball and continue running with it. Right. So, but because it's it's difficult. I mean, I've, I've, asked, I've asked people, you know, just looking at the conservative movement in general, I've asked people what, you know, what happened. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But one of them, someone told me, someone who I respect said to me, you know, the rabbis were not forceful enough. They, they never really got up in, in the sermon and really, you know, the, the kind of the Musa movement that we talk about, they never, they were reluctant to kind of give Musa to the congregation. They didn't feel it would be accepted. And so they shied away from it. And this person said to me, that was a big mistake that we made. We should have, our rabbi should have been much more proactive in pushing these things, but, but they didn't. Uh, I agree. I'm not con criticizing colleagues. I'm criticizing all of us. Uh, for not taking the message of conservative Judaism and really more forcefully teaching it and uh, promoting an agenda that would accomplish it. I mean, again, you, I accept the fact that many Jews observe Rosh Hashanah, observe Yom Kippur, but it's not enough for me when it bothers me when a person says, Gee, I didn't even know Shavuot was coming or uh, that Sukkot was coming. And that bothers me when a person says, I would much rather a Jew say, I know it's Shavuot, but I've got other things to do and therefore I can't observe it. I've got to be at work. I've got to, got to take care right. of patients. What bothers me more is that there are people who don't even know it's Shavuot and yeah. it isn't on their calendar. And I, I think that rabbis and cantors and educators have to do more to uh, put it on the Jewish agenda. So let's talk about Jewish education, then, which is obviously important. So the Solomon Schechter schools, uh, I guess when you started, they were, I mean, I don't, I don't, how many are there today? Do you know? Very few. Very but few. the schools are still there. They don't call them Solomon Schechter schools anymore. So there's the LaFell School in in White Plains. That was a Solomon Schechter school. It still operates with the same philosophy, basically. But uh, a lot of schools said came to the conclusion that being a, a Schechter school and saying we're going to promote conservative Judaism wasn't wasn't accomplishing what they wanted. They wanted to be able to be more pluralistic in the right. people that were uh, sending their children to the school. Right. So this has been this has been probably an issue. So how many? I mean, did did many of the Solomon Schechter schools become 
other schools or many of them closed and just uh, they could they didn't have enough students? What happened? Uh, no, a number, some did close, but I think uh, as many more just became com- quote community schools right. and uh, took on a name because the LaFell School, I would imagine that the LaFell family provided some funding and that is enabling more children to get a a Jewish education. I I think it is a real challenge in the non-Orthodox world to convince many parents that the Jewish education is uh, is a priority. Your your rabbis, uh, the Orthodox rabbinate, uh, had decided that day school education was a priority. There are very few congregations in the Orthodox world that uh, run a religious school, uh, Hebrew school, because the rabbis want their children, their congregants, to be uh, in a more intensive Jewish education. Right. Right. No, there's no question that that's been one of the real strengths of the Orthodox community that the the schools are growing, the the yeshivas are growing, and the movement the movement is growing. But I always think about you know the conservative movement when certainly it was predicted sixty seventy years ago. I mean, when they looked at the 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 big picture, there's no question that they felt conservative Jewry would probably be in a really great growth mode, and it hasn't turned out to be that way. And I think you're right because maybe Jewish education. But an Israeli government, you know, has said they would like to help the the, the diaspora because they see what's going on. If they offered free tuition, you think we'd get many more people who would then enroll their kids in Jewish education? I think so. It would be an interesting experiment that I would love to see. Uh, I think, yeah, I think many parents would, would do it, but they stop and say, you want me to send my kids to summer camp and you want me to send my uh, kids to youth conventions and all this. And on top of it, uh, I've got to spend X thousands of dollars for their education. If I have four kids, it's uh, three kids. It's a lot of money. Oh, yeah. No, no. Listen, there's got to be a commitment to it. I mean, you know, you've got to feel it's worth it. Otherwise, you wouldn't really, really wouldn't do it. So we're, if we look at conservative Judaism today, so what do they have to do to get back on track? I think the only, well, I won't say the only way, the most significant way, I think, for conservative Judaism to get back on track is to stop playing the numbers game. And I think you've got to say, uh, this is where we stand. We stand for uh, Shabbat and Kashrut and halacha and mitzvot, and not explicitly, but implicitly saying to people, if you join our synagogue, we're going to try to inspire you to grow in your Jewish commitment. Now, there are going to be people who are going to say, I don't want that. I'm happy where I am. Uh, If that's the case, we're never going to succeed. We've got to get be willing to say, if you don't think that our teaching that kashrut is important as we teach our your children and then and we run an adult education program or Shabbat, then this isn't the place for you. If you want a 
marriage to take place on Saturday afternoon and not necessarily worry about Mariv and Havdalah, this isn't the place for you. Congregations are looking for more and more ways to accommodate a lack of uh, commitment. And by doing that, uh, weaken the values of conservative Judaism. I, I, I think that it's, it's very clear that most people today in the Jewish world uh, don't want to live by mitzvot or by uh, halacha, and so it's a harder sell. So then really, in a way, what you're advocating, Rabbi Epstein, is that the conservative movement should go back to the principles at which they were founded. And whatever the numbers are, and there'll be a lot less, but it'll be a real movement. And then it has a chance of really making an impact, growing, succeeding. But really, there'll be almost like a schism. I mean, many of the conservative synagogues, as we know now, would maybe not be part of this new movement and be part of the movement. Others would want to join. How many do you think in the movement today, if we look at what you're just advocating, how many would say, yes, that's what we really should be doing? And where would it leave conservative Judaism at that point? I don't know how many uh, it would be, but I, I wouldn't start that way. I would start saying, OK, let's start educating and inspiring towards that effort and then see where, where it goes without trying to go back to the principles of conservative Judaism, uh, what, what's the value? What's the, okay. the, what's the value of having the conservative movement? There are plenty of options for people to go to synagogues and very wonderful synagogues or temples that aren't conservative, that are more open to a, a type of life that isn't committed to halakha or committed to mitzvot. I am committed to halakha. My halakha may be different, uh, it is different than your halakha, but it's, it's a halakha. I'm bound by that halakha. And uh, just because my halakha is different doesn't mean that I can't be a committed Jew uh, because of that, I mean, I, my halakha says that a minyan is made up of 10 adults. Your halakha basically would say, no, a minyan is made up of 10 male adults. That doesn't mean that I can say, okay, now if my halakha, we'll do with three adults or we'll do with uh, five adults. No, I have a halakha that says 10 adults. And that's what it's got to be. So it's halacha. Right. But your, but your halacha also says, because I know you well, of course, that you should be eating kosher. You should be, you should be observing the Shabbat. Right. And, uh, and so, right. I mean, so, you know, whatever degrees. Okay, that's always a question. You know, people talk about what the degrees of for the accepting. But generally speaking, that's what you're saying, which is today, I, I don't think in many conservative synagogues, that's really not the premise. You don't have to accept Shabbat, okay, or, you know, Kashrut. I'm willing to start by saying you don't have to, to be a member of this congregation, you don't have to observe Kashrut. 
You don't have to observe Shabbat. But know that if you're going to join this congregation, we're going to do our best to inspire you to, to grow that way. So you're going to get messages from me as the rabbi I that says uh, kashrut is important and this is how you do it and this is how you uh, start and uh, I'm going to run right. classes to help you get to that way. Know that that's where um, our emphasis right. is going to be. Well, that would be wonderful. Basically, you're saying teach them uh, so, uh, so that, that they, at least they know. They're educated. If they're an educated Jew, then they can make a decision on their own. But at least it's an edu... You know, what did Sysims used to say? An educated consumer is our best customer. Right. Let's educate them and let's make sure that they understand exactly what's going on. And then at that point, many of them will choose to do it on their own. Some won't. But at least there'll be some options, some viable options. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful idea. I hope that we can actually do that. I, you know, I do, it's an uphill battle. There's no question. Oh, what, you're, what you're proposing is a major, major monumental shift in where the organization is today compared to where it was when you were first involved and, and your concept of where it would go, right? Right. But it's not, I want to just modify what you said. It's not enough okay. just to educate. I think people have to be willing to inspire and to and to okay. motivate and to say, uh, I'm not just teaching this class on Kashrut as an intellectual uh, right. endeavor. It's something that I I want to try to motivate you to to go in this in this route. And that's uh, that's a challenge. I, I know it will not be easy, nor was it easy when I was involved. But we I felt we were making some progress. What about now? What about now? Are the people who are the leaders, do they feel the same way you feel? or they're? I really don't know. Okay, because you haven't really followed as much. But yeah, listen, I, I hope for the sake of uh, the Jewish people that people would start to do advocate the position that you've just spoken about, and it would be important for us to have a very strong conservative movement. I want to ask you one other question before we get to the lightning round, and that's a question that I used to grapple with a lot also, and when I was the president of the OU, but the role of diaspora Jews as it relates to Israel. Uh, do you think we have a right to, I mean, we'll see what's going on now you know, with judicial reform, but in general, what position do you think we should have as diaspora Jews in relation to Israel and their internal politics and what goes on in the country? I, I think it depends on what your vision of Israel is. Is Israel another country, or is Israel the homeland for the Jewish community, the Jewish world? And I believe that Israel is the homeland of Jews, the Jewish world, and I believe that because of that, uh, if I am committed to Israel, uh, that I should be able to have a role, a voice at least, in what goes on in Israel. The uh, the issues that Israel is, are, is confronting right now, the, the truth is that they will affect me. And therefore, I think I have a voice. I, uh, because I've made Aliyah, I could also have a vote if I'm, if I'm there. Right, 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 absolutely. 
I think I actually saw you one time when I came. I think when during the many votes that they had, I actually think I saw you coming in to vote in one of the schools, right around the Inbal Hotel or something. Right, right. Okay, anyway, so, you know, if you listen to the program, you know, we always end with something called the lightning round. So let me ask you just a few questions. Kind of just tell me more or less what, what, what you think. You know, it doesn't have to be one-word answers. But who's the greatest person you actually ever met? I think Golda Meir. Okay. Great answer. Wow, that, that's a tremendous, to, to meet Golda Meir. What about um, if um, you could meet anybody in history at all? Who would you like to, who would that person be? I think if I can meet anybody in history today, I'd like to meet Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer right there. What about the best speaker you ever heard? The best speaker I've ever heard? Uh, Malcolm Holmline. Oh, that's interesting. Wow, Malcolm Holmline. He is a great speaker, no question about it. What about the greatest speech you ever heard? Like, you know, in a particular moment, sometimes it's just a moment when that speech is exactly the right speech. Although I wasn't there for it, uh, I think Martin Luther King's uh, speech at the mall. At the mall, right. That was a great speech. Um, Now, besides your wife, because I don't want you to give me that answer, if you were in a foxhole, who would you want with you? You know, I'd want, if I was in a fossil, Morton Klein. <laughs> That's a great answer, Mort Klein, yeah. I don't think anyone would ever think you would have given that answer, and I hope Mort Klein is going to listen to the show. Actually, I'm going to call him and tell him that. I just interviewed you, and that's what, that, that's what you said. I never agree with him. Oh, I understand, but he's a fighter. He's a fighter. Oh, yeah. What about the, who's the smartest person you ever met? My wife. Okay, that's a very politically astute answer to make. Okay, what about... Um, Who's your favorite writer? My favorite writer uh, today is, uh, so there's so many good ones that- Okay, so give me two or three, yeah. I like Natan Sharansky. Okay. I, I like reading what he, he writes. You know, um, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Right, okay, that's another good one, excellent. Yeah. Um, Neil Gilman. Okay, right, right, right. Okay, those are good. Uh, let's do one or two more questions, just then, you know, let's say what we're going to talk about here. What about um, your, I know that you're a spiritual person, I've dealt with, I know you for a long time, so what's your favorite tefillah? My favorite tefillah is, uh, is the daily Amidah. Uh, okay. I, uh, I think the rabbis, when they put that together, were uh, ingenious. Uh, it follows a rhythm. It follows. It, it it allows a person to deal with uh, personal issues and world issues, and puts it together in a uh, a rational way uh, for a spiritual experience. Okay. What about your favorite Chag? My favorite Chag? Believe it or not, my favorite Chag is Pesach. Uh, a lot of people say that, by the way. Most, many people say Pesach is the favorite, uh, the favorite Chag. I understand. It's family, everyone's getting together. It's just, it's a great, it's a great place. What about your favorite vacation spot? Jerusalem here at Kodesh. Okay, good enough. One, one last question. Tell me one thing about you that you think people don't really know. I think perhaps 
the one thing that people don't know about me is the import for me of family. Uh, I, I'm, I've been such a public person that I haven't really had uh, an opportunity to spend as much time with family as I uh, liked, would have liked to have done while I was working. And uh, I think most people saw me in a public uh, forum, a public fora, and right. uh, didn't recognize the fact that uh, I really enjoyed being with family and uh, felt that that was a responsibility that I have too. Uh, the fact that I can uh, influence grandchildren today, uh, I don't take that for granted. Wonderful. That's really it's a great. It's a really wonderful answer. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the program, Rabbi Epstein, Rabbi Jerome Epstein, and uh, thank you for coming on Unrestricted and uh, continued good health to you and continue all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Okay. Call Tuv. Be well. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savitsky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.